Holy Spirit. Amen. We celebrate today the feast of the Synaxis of the Apostles. Here in the Gospel, and we also celebrate for the second week running the Feast of Saints. Today, this Feast of All Saints of Great Britain. Last week, we celebrated and commemorated all of the saints. And each national group, each culture has its own pattern after which they celebrate all the saints. And I suspect what we should do is we should follow the pattern of these frescoes. First over there, the saints of Great Britain, the saints of Western Europe, the saints of Greece and Asia Minor, the saints of, Greek, of uh, Armenia uh, and the East, and the saints of Russia. We're also following the Divine Liturgy step by step, slowly looking at the Divine Liturgy. And last week, at the first start of these homilies on the idea of the Liturgy as gift, we heard about Kronos and Keros. We heard about the perfect time, the Keros time, within which God acts, as opposed to Kronos time, which is our time, the time in which we act. And in the Divine Liturgy, at the start of the Divine Liturgy, I said last week that the deacon has the first word to say. And often when we look at the Divine Liturgy, we need to have in mind two other actors that are not present in our parish every week. The first one is the deacon, and the second one is the bishop. Maybe I should say the bishop should be first, but in actuality the deacon is perhaps a little more important than the bishop, but don't tell our bishop. Um, so when we hear about this phrase just before the Divine Liturgy starts, the deacon says, it is time for the Lord to act, Master, give the blessing. Keros is the word that's used rather than chronos. It is the perfect time, this is the perfect moment in which the Lord acts. And then there's a little dialogue between the presiding priest or bishop uh, and the deacon, which isn't too important for us at the moment. It's a dialogue between the two of them. But the priest starts the divine liturgy, as you will see every week. He starts the divine liturgy with the words, Blessed is the kingdom of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, now and ever, unto the ages of ages. Amen. Now, bear in mind that the bishop at this point is standing in the centre of all his people. He stands in the middle of the church, fully vested, and all the people of his church are gathered around him. And he dispatches a priest. So if those of you have seen a hierarchical divine liturgy, the priests will be gathered around him. And he takes his first priest, his protos, and gives him a blessing and sends him to the holy table. And the priest turns around and bows to the bishop and then turns back to the holy table and lifts the gospel up like this, and he makes the sign of the cross over the holy table, over the antimins cloth, saying these words, Blessed is the kingdom of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, now and forever and to the ages of ages. Amen. Now the priest, is, of course, in this case, is doing the work of the bishop. It is the bishop who says these words. It is the bishop's prayer. But you'll notice the bishop always allows, gives the blessing, deputizes priests to do things for him. Otherwise, the bishop would have a busy Sunday morning going around all 120-plus parishes and serving divine liturgy. So I stand here on his behalf and have no other function 
apart from being his representative in this parish. Why do I say this? Because everything that we do in the Divine Liturgy comes to us for a reason. And it comes to us from 2,000 years of practice. And there is an important reason why we have those 2,000 years of practice. Some of those 2,000 years of practice are 2,000 years old. But some of them are just this week. But all of those practices, all of those living habits of the church are present in an archaeological layer in the church. So when you come into the church, you're not just seeing the body of Christ here and now, but you are seeing the body of Christ through the last 2,000 years. Because what is the bishop saying at this point? He says, blessed is the kingdom. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit part comes a little later. But the first part of the prayer is blessed is the kingdom. What is this kingdom and why is it blessed? And what is it that's being blessed? Nowadays we think of kingdoms, we think of the United Kingdom of Great Britain, and we think of it as a territory, a place, a garden, a, an island, a, a country with walls around it, with borders. But this is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God are persons. And I use the word person very deliberately, not just people, just any old people, but persons, people who are beloved and blessed in the sight of the Lord. So the first thing that the bishop does with all the people gathered around him, he says, and well often you'll find that the bishop will do this, he will hold his hands out in what's known as the orans, the prayer position. And the priest does this several times during the divine liturgy. And he'll show the Lord, his people, gathered around him. And he'll say, blessed is the kingdom. He is facing towards the east, he is facing towards God, and he is blessing God. But he's also blessing the kingdom of God, which is a peoples that have been growing and developing and loving the Lord for 2,000 years. And as I point to all of you, just look behind you, those of you who are glued to the walls. Just look at behind you and look at the other people that we are representing, that we are pointing to when we say, blessed is the kingdom. We have on my right, St. David of Wales, St. Patrick of Ireland, Frideswide of Oxford, Columba of Iona, Chad of Lichfield, Theodore of Canterbury, St. Edward, King and Martyr, just to name those, some of those saints of Great Britain. And who are they to us? We can think of the church in, as we must think of the church as the body of Christ. And the body is made up of at least bones and sinews, a skeleton and sinews. And the skeleton of the church are the things that you can visibly see and touch. The buildings, the text of the Gospels the vestments, the incense, all the stuff that we see and we touch and feel. And they are vitally important. But without sinews, they're just a pile of dry old bones lying on the floor. What are the sinews of the church? What is it that gives life and movement to the church? Well, we have heard two descriptions of the sinews of the church. Mm -hmm. We just 
make sure as I grab the epistle. Peter, would you find that epistle for me again? I'll start with the gospel and work backwards to the epistle. But in the second gospel, we see this is the gospel for the second saint, second of the two gospels for the saints. Thank you very much. At that time, Jesus was being followed by a great multitude of people, and he says and preaches the blessed is, the Beatitudes. These are the prayers that we hear in the third antiphon every week. These are the sinews. We have bishops, and we can point to bishops because they wear the panagia around their neck, and they are monks, and they wear the cassocks. And we can point to priests and deacons. We can point to the bones of the church. But who are the sinews? The sinews are the people who are poor in spirit, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They who mourn, because they shall be comforted. The sinews of the church are the meek. They hunger and thirst after righteousness. The sinews of the church are merciful, because they obtain mercy. They are pure in heart. They are peacemakers. They are persecuted for righteousness' sake. They are reviled by other people and are persecuted. And people say all manner of evil things against them falsely for the sake of our Lord. They are the sinews of the church. And Paul writes to the church in Rome and says, not the one I thought it was, which is the second one, the saints one, the one there I thought it was. Brethren, all the saints through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, were valiant in the fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, in other words, those who attack the people of God. Women received their dead, raised to life, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. They had trials of cruel mockings and scourgings, bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted and slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, were destitute, afflicted, tormented. They wander in deserts and mountains, in caves and dens of the earth. And they, having obtained a good report through faith, yet did not receive the promise. I'll come back to that not receiving the promised bit. But we can see here the definitions of what it is to be a saint, to be a sinew of the church, to build on and make active and dynamic and alive the bones of the church, the people who fulfill hierarchical positions are vitally important. Because in the first gospel, we see Jesus calling the apostles. And the bishops amongst us are the descendants of the apostles. Insofar as they have preached the word of God, insofar as they are good men, true and strong, insofar as they divide the word of God's truth, they are recognised by the church as being the descendants of the apostles. What they preach, and how they act, and how they govern the people of the church. And then you could think of the priests of the church as being like the 70, those that were called later, the deacons were called later, and the priests called out of the 70 to serve the bishop, 
to help the bishop, to assist the bishop, and to assist the people of God who the bishop has been given to. They are the bones of the church. They are the strength, they are the visible infrastructure, the hierarchy of the church. But without sinews, those bonds are dry and dead and on the floor. And the sinews of the church are who we celebrate last week, and this week, and the next few weeks as we remember each of the saints of the church. These are the people who will give us life. These are the people who are the kingdom of God. And each one of those people acted in a certain way. Acted heroically, acted in saintly ways, acted in holiness. Yes, and they taught. But they also left <coughs> us these things which were given to us by the apostles. Those who remember my preaching on the liturgy of St. James of Jerusalem last year will recognise that phrase. The apostles writing to the first bishops of the church, including James, the brother of our Lord, saying, these are the ways in which we worship God. And these men and women around us have continued those traditions and passed those traditions down through the centuries, through 2,000 years of practice, so that we, the flesh of the body of Christ, without bones and without sinews, what is a pile of flesh? It is also just a big pile of blubber on the floor. So without the bones and sinews of the church, we today, the flesh of the body of Christ, the flesh of the kingdom of God, we are nothing without them. We just flop around without direction, without clarity, picking up whatever we can from wherever we can. But we don't need to do that, my brothers and sisters, because the tradition of the church, the bones and the sinews of the church, can give us form and shape, give us action and life, and invigorated, inspired, excuse the pun, by the Holy Spirit, we stand upright, and we act boldly before our Lord, and we claim that the kingdom of God is at hand. We then, as a body of Christ, not just individual floppy bits of human being, but a body of Christ that has bones, a skeleton, and has sinews and strength, and has flesh and compassion, we then go forward and make the body of Christ. Not just going out and preaching the gospel, and being the gospel, but as we're going to see this afternoon amongst us, we're going to make bread, the prosphora, which is used. We're going to, yeah, we're going to make the bread. We're not going to create the bread, because God is the creator. But we are going to work synergistically with God. We are going to take his gift to us, which is flour and grape. And we're going to make something of it. We're going to co-create something of it. Which then, in our case, which will be bread. God doesn't do all the work on his own. He doesn't magically make the bread. And it appears before us. But he does make the rains. He does make, praise be to God, the sunshine and the warmth. 
He does sustain his creation at all times so that we can rejoice in the harvest of the farmers and we can go rather lazily to the shops and buy ready ground flour. But having done so, we don't just hand that gift back to God undealt with, untouched, just in a bag and say, God, here you go, here's your gift back. But no, we do something with it. We add yeast from the air. We make it and bind it with our own hands. And then we bake it, we make something of it, such that it becomes bread, such it becomes something that we then are able to offer back to our Lord Jesus Christ as our gift of return to him. He has already offered us the gift. And we have received the gift and made something with it, and we offer it back to God such that he immediately offers it back to us in the communion. And then we offer it back to him immediately by us being the body of Christ, being the bones, being the sinews, and being the flesh of the kingdom of God. As we participate in the divine liturgy, we're not just standing here as the flesh of the body of Christ, but we are building up the sinews and we are building up the bones, the skeleton of the church of Christ, the kingdom of God. Each one of us will pass into history. Every one of us will pass into history. One or more of us may pass into these frescoes around us and maybe into icons as recognised saints of the church. But all of us have the opportunity to be sinews because all we have to do is every morning wake up and pick up the Gospels and read Matthew 4, 25 to 5, 12. And begin by saying, at least, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.